Bibles and then set them in the, on a cart back there. You're welcome to just get on up and head back there and get one. It's important to have a Bible open when the preacher's preaching because the preacher ought to be preaching the Bible. You ought to be making sure of that and not just taking my word for it. Uh, so I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open while the word's being preached. But Matthew chapter 17, and I'll begin reading at verse 24. If you would, please stand with me one more time before I preach as we honor God in the reading of his word. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Verse 26, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Again, Father, we, we're just asking, Lord, we're always asking because we're always in need. And you, you have told us in your word that we're supposed to come boldly to your throne of grace in time of need. And Father, we need in this moment eyes to see and ears to hear. We need to see the glory of Christ, the beauty of the gospel. Some for the first time, and many who are Christians and believers here, we need to just see it afresh and anew. We need to see the glory of Christ right here in these words. And for that to happen, it's going to take you doing it, Lord. It's going to take a miracle. Because we don't naturally see and hear these things. But it's the Father in heaven that reveals. Please do your gracious work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Drew Brees is the Super Bowl winning quarterback from the New Orleans Saints. And this week he came under criticism because he spoke out in support of a Focus on the Family initiative to encourage students later on, public school students later on, to bring their Bibles to school. It's a national day of bring your Bible to school day or something like that. So Drew Brees appeared on a, maybe it's a 90-second commercial supporting this initiative. And is now Drew Brees being a Christian, supporting Focus on the Family, who tr supports traditional Christian values in relation to marriage and so forth. People have jumped all over Drew Brees in the media, and it's kind of been something that's been going around this week. Isn't there always something going around, though? I ain't talking about sickness either. I'm talking about people being offended about something, and whining about something. It just reminded me that we certainly live in an easily offended culture. 
And our tendency as believers is to want to get together and vent about that. <laughs> the reason I even start the message that way this morning is I think about Jesus' context. The day in which Jesus has lived, he was always being watched. Christians were always being watched. And people are always ready to pounce on us for hypocrisy that they're going to see. And they're going to see it because we are going to sin. And we need to be quick to admit that and to remind them that we're only right with God through what Jesus has done. It took the death of Jesus to make us right with God. We are not right with God on our own. And it takes the same death of Jesus to make them right, and he will if they'll call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? Jesus is always being watched. And people were always ready to take offense at Jesus. In fact, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were easily offended at Jesus. Yet Jesus, in this passage of Scripture that we just read, Jesus is very careful here to notice to not do something. He's careful to not offend. He doesn't want them to take offense. If you see your Bible there in verse 27, however not to give offense, he tells Peter, go ahead, we're going to pay this tax. The word there, offense, is literally to scandalize. It comes from a word translated that could be translated scandalize. He doesn't want to offend because he doesn't want to scandalize these people. He doesn't want to be a stumbling stone to these people. He loves these people. These easily offended people that are always watching him, ready to take offense, he came to seek and to save those which are lost. Therefore, even though he doesn't have to pay the tax, we will see in this passage of scripture, nor his followers, he still does. Because he came to seek and to seek, seek and to save those who are lost, even those who are easily offended in his day. I like to go fishing. And I look forward to the day maybe when uh, I'll be able to do a lot more of it. And uh, some of you Retired folks, maybe you get to do a little bit more fishing now than you used to, and then some folks say, well, I'm retired, but that don't mean I ain't doing nothing, right? But uh, sometimes I, I've talked to some retired folks before. I say, what are you going to do today? I remember Steve Wazen, he retired here recently. He said, I want to do whatever I want. <laughs> retired folks might say, well, I'm going to go fishing. And that display of freedom as a retired person able to do whatever they want, supposedly anyway, we find that that's not necessarily true, leads a response from myself to Steve Wazen or someone else to say, man, that must be nice. Not necessarily rejoicing with them, but man, that must be nice, a little bit jealous. You know, I mention that because what is it that... Jesus tells Peter to do again in this passage of scripture. He says, go ahead and pay the tax anyway. He says to Peter, Peter, I want you to go ahead and I want you to go fishing. And I want you to fish by faith so you can display the freedom of Christ. A retired person might be out displaying their freedom of retirement and we may say that's nice and Jesus says, Peter, I want you to go out so that they're not offended and I want you to pay the tax, display the freedom of Christ so that they might respond and say, well, that's 
unusual response. That must be nice, this freedom that you say that you have. And it might even be a means of that person being drawn to the Lord Jesus and how we use our freedom in Christ wisely and graciously and responsibly. So rather than offend and scandalize the people that he came to seek and to save, easily offended as they are, Jesus wants them to say, man, what I see in Jesus, what I see in his followers, that must be nice. There must be something to that. The main point of this passage of scripture is to live by faith in the land of the easily offended to display the freedom of Christ. Live by faith in the land of the easily offended to display the freedom of Christ. So there's a little explanation needs to go on here real quick about this tax. So they, they come to him in Capernaum. That's the area of Jesus' hometown. They came to Capernaum in verse 24 and the, the tax collector showed up. Matthew himself here in the Gospel of Matthew was a tax collector from the same area. And the collectors come up and they want to withdraw from Jesus and, and kind of catch them, maybe waiting for them to say, no, we don't pay the tax and say, is your, is your master, is your teacher, is Jesus, is he going to pay the two drachma tax? And this two drachma tax, we need to understand, was not a tax of the Roman government, from the Roman government upon its citizens. This tax was a tax upon Jewish people who were taxed by the elders of the Jews in relation to what the Bible teaches in Exodus chapter 30. That everybody 20 years old and older, if you look in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13 through 16, if you were 20 years old and older, once a year, you had to pay the two drachma tax. And that tax would be used to take care of the building. All right, take care of the, of the tabernacle at the time and later the permanent structure of the temple and, and support to some extent the Levites and those that worked and ministered there. It was a tax. They had other tithes as well that they had to do. And that, so they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you going to pay this two drachma tax? Drachma was sort of a coin, wasn't worth a whole lot. But then again, it was because it was a day's wages. Just one drachma was a day's wages, if I remember cor correctly. So it was a lot to them. So what did Peter respond? Peter said, yes, he does pay the tax. And I want you to notice this about Peter's response and the way Jesus handles that. Jesus said, of course he pays the tax. We're going to pay our tax. And the way Jesus responds here is to teach Peter something about why they pay the temple tax, why he pays the temple tax. Peter answered correctly and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for it. But Peter's beginning, Jesus is beginning to teach Peter and the disciples more and more, these disciples of little faith, about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants Peter to know that the temple tax, they pay it not because of an obligation to God as it once was for them, but they pay the temple tax because of motivation from God. They don't pay the temple tax because of an obligation to God, but they're going to pay the temple tax because of motivation from God, because of something new that God is doing. Namely, the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And in light of what God is doing, even though they don't have to pay the temple taxes, we'll see they're going to go ahead and pay it anyway, and they're motivated to do that. They want to do that, not because they have to, because they want to. 
in light of what God has done. So there's two compelling reasons that I want to share with you in Peter's interaction with Jesus, Jesus' interaction with Peter. Two compelling reasons we live by faith in the land of the easily offended. And then how it is we go about doing that. Two compelling reasons. Number one, there's something that we see. We see the complete freedom of the Son of God. That the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is completely free. Peter saw and heard it earlier in Matthew chapter 16 on the Mount, or Matthew 17 in this same chapter, on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus appeared and suddenly, as he stood before the disciples, remember, his countenance changed and they saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. Flesh being peeled back, they could see this is who he is. And then they heard a voice. This is my beloved son. This is my son. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. Peter had been rebuked earlier in Matthew 16 because when Jesus began to speak about being crucified, Peter said, what did he say? Never going to happen to you. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the way God thinks here. Nothing happens to Jesus. You understand? He lays down his life. He's going to go to Jerusalem because it's the plan of God before he even created this world. So Peter, don't say to me, to Jesus, don't say to Jesus, we're not going to let this happen. Peter, it's not going to just happen. It's going to, it's ordained. It was planned. It's part of the whole deal. Don't you understand? Christ is completely free. You're not, understand, he can call down thousands of angels to take him and deliver him from the cross. He can speak to the soldiers as they're coming, as they're coming with the elders and priests on the night when he's betrayed and see them fall to the ground and say, Peter draws out his sword and cuts somebody's ear off and he says, put your sword up, Peter. I don't need that. They're coming to arrest me because I'm letting them. He lays down his life for the sheep. He is completely free. So what's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration before this incident is they're seeing the complete freedom of Christ. He's not just a man. This is God. And God is completely sovereign. He's completely free. You can't do anything to him. Amen? This is our Jesus. And so now what he's hearing is Jesus' reply affirms what he had just seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells a parable, doesn't he? If you look in your Bible, look at verse 25. He said, yes, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him and said, asked him a question. You look in verse 25 in the middle of it. What do you think, Simon? Whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others. So he's tearing a, telling a parable. It's a parable because he's talking about kings of the earth. But this temple tax, is it, is it a tax from, from the kings of the earth? No, it's a tax from the king of heaven. So it's a parable to help illustrate what's actually happening here about this temple tax 
from God, from the king of heaven. From whom do the kings of the earth take total tax? From their sons or from others? So is a king going to tax his sons? In a lot of places, no, they're not going to do it. Who are they going to tax? They're going to tax anybody that's not in their family, but not their own flesh and blood. And that's how Peter answers. He says, how does he answer? Verse 26, you're looking at your Bible. He said, when he, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are what? The sons are free. The sons are free. They don't have to pay the tax. And then Jesus said, however, not to give offense. And he tells him to go fishing. And he says, we're going to go ahead and pay the tax anyway. So what's Jesus? And he says, for me and for yourself at the end of verse 27. You see that? What Jesus is saying here is, Peter, I'm applying this parable to this temple tax. I am the son of the king of heaven who places this tax upon the people of God. And I am free. The sons are free. He says, you go fishing. We'll pay the tax anyway for me and for yourself because the sons, you see sons, plural, right? The sons are free. So you go ahead and pay it anyway. So what we see here is the complete freedom of the Son of God, which is to motivate his disciples, knowing that he's free to do whatever he wants to do. Nothing's going to happen to him. Yet, how does he use his freedom? So that he doesn't offend in this text. He uses his freedom. He doesn't have to leave heaven. He doesn't have to leave glory. He's not obligated to come here. He's not obligated to lay down his life for our sins. He, he could rightly destroy all of us and, and be just in doing so. But in his complete freedom, what does he do? He's come here to rescue and redeem us. And by a miracle of God, what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration that the glory of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, by a miracle of God, those of, us who, uh, uh, those of us who are believers, we see that in our hearts. We see the complete freedom of Christ, that he's the Son of God. And hand in hand with that, number two, not only do we see the complete freedom of the Son of God that leads us to live by faith in the land of the easily offended, we savor our Christ given freedom as sons of God. Jesus is the son of God. And he says, what did he say? Then the sons are free, plural. You see that? Then the son, I thought, I thought God just had one son. He does, one unique only son. But he says, then the sons are free. And he applies that to both Peter and himself. And what he is saying is those who are followers of Jesus are sons of the king of heaven. And they don't have to pay the temple tax either. So we see the complete freedom of the son of God, but we savor our Christ-given freedom as sons of God. Because here's what happens. The Son of God, in his complete freedom, leaves glory, comes to, hell, come, comes to earth. He's not, he doesn't have to pay this temple tax. Matthew chapter 12 says he's greater than the temple, right? He's greater than the temple. Jesus needs no temple. He needs no sacrifice. He needs no priest. He's greater than the temple. 
He's, he's, the one, he's the one you come to meet with God. You don't need to go to temple. You go to Christ. Amen? He's the ones for all sacrifice. He's the superior priest. He's the one that mediates for us. He's the fulfillment of the new covenant. And when he hangs on the cross, what happens in the temple? That old veil is torn in two, showing that we don't need a temple and we don't need priests and we don't need the sacrificial system any longer. He's our priest. He's our once for all sacrifice. He's the place we go to to meet with Jesus. And he did that for us. He who is completely free to do whatever he wants came and died on the cross and shed his blood so that that could be applied to us who are followers of Jesus, sons of God. Why did he do it? The son of God set his followers free to be the sons of God. Galatians chapter four, verse four through five says it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The one who's completely free. This is what we see. This is what motivates us to live by faith in a land of the easily offended. Why, we, why do we go ahead and live by faith? And try not to give unnecessary offense as we see in these passages of scripture. It's because we're motivated not by obligation to keep us right with God. We're not trying to keep rules like Caitlin began to understand in her testimony, right? It's not rule keeping that makes us right with God. It's Christ trusting. It's Christ beauty. It's his glory that motivates us to do what we do for God. And so I live by faith in the land of the easily offended because I see the complete freedom of the Son of God and I see what I deserve, yet this is what he has done. He's fulfilled the law. He's accomplished everything necessary. When the Father looks at his sacrifice, the Father does not say, that's great, but I need more from them. No, he says, I'm satisfied with that. It's finished, Jesus said, and that's exactly right. And we sang it this morning. Those he saves are his delight. We were once enemies, Ryan. Those he's, now he delights in his people. We are sons of God adopted into his family. That's what it says in Galatians chapter four. Or excuse me, yeah, chapter four. So as we think about applying this, how do we go about living by faith in the land of the easily offended, motivated by the gospel. You know, I like fishing, but I don't like paying taxes. But the main point of this passage of scripture is not go fishing and trust God to pay your taxes. Nor is it go fishing and don't worry about paying your taxes. We think about freedom, the freedom we have in Christ. You know, I think about I graduated high school in 1990, and um, we printed up T-shirts the year I graduated from high school, and everybody signed the T-shirt. You know, I guess classes still do that now. We didn't have a very big high graduating class, but on the back of our T-shirt, 
They put class of 1990, the end of a 12-year depression. And we got that diploma and we were free. You remember that day of getting your high school diploma or your college degree? It's free, free from these exams and so forth. That's something to look forward to. We think about, perhaps I remember being in the military and, and thinking about my being a short timer and how I didn't have much time left to fulfill my four-year commitment and the day finally come when I was able to sign the DD-214 and be discharged and I was free from shining boots and getting really, really short haircuts and getting cussed at for not showing up to run four miles at five o'clock in the morning. Free! Or your husband takes the kids out for the day and you... You wives, you moms, you respond, you know, I'm free for the day. Or you finally reach retirement date and it comes, you're like, I'm free. Steve, Sharon, I don't have to get up tomorrow morning. If I don't want to, I'll just, I'll just keep sleeping. And then we find out in the reality of retirement or high school diplomas or even getting a break for a day as a, tired mom that even that freedom has responsibilities that come with it certain confines you must live by limitations to it if you're not to get in trouble or, or simply be responsible and so it is in a much greater way with our freedom that we have in Christ we are free not to sin don't hear this message as free means we have a license of sin and can live any way we want to. You live any way you want to, you're going to hell. I can't be more plainer than that. He saved us not so we can live any way we want to. He saved us to live for his glory. And we do not want to live any way we want to. We want to live for his namesake. And when we are sinning, we are convicted of that. But we are free in the sense of knowing even when we sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because we're saved by what he did and not what we do. But in this freedom, this great freedom that we have in Christ, right? There's responsibilities. And so we see the complete freedom of the Son of God and the Christ-given freedom he's given to us as children of God. And we're motivated to glorify God and to help others. So what does this display of our freedom in Christ in a land of the easily offended look like two things quickly. Number one, restraint. You see that in the text, restraint. You don't see that word, but you see that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, then the sons are free. Lean to verse 26, you see that? Then he says, however. Folks, there don't have to be a however there, right? Then the sons are free, place closed, I'm out of here. You keep your taxes to yourself. I'm not obligated. Peter, you're a son. You don't have to pay it either. No, Jesus says, however. And then he says, go fishing. Jesus exercises restraint. Do you see the humility of Christ? The humility of God, the son? Who are we? not to seek to show the same restraint in the land of the easily offended. We exercise restraint. We display the freedom of Christ through the humble restraint of our freedom. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about it 
in more than one place. One place he talks about is in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. And he says this, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So the, the law is interpreted as it is fulfilled in Jesus. We're not free from moral restraints and so forth. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. Why? That by all means I might save some. Why is there a however in verse 27? Why is there a verse 27 at all? Because he came to seek to save those who are easily offended. He came to seek and to save those that are lost. He has compassion for the lost. And so there's a humble restraint of his freedom. There must be a humble restraint of ours that, all, that by all means some might be saved, that God might use us that way. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Perhaps Peter, I don't believe, ever forgot this lesson. Man, if you go fishing and find a coin in its mouth to pay your taxes, I don't think I'd ever forget it either. And he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Let them observe your law-abiding, your restraint on social media. And folks, I, when I was thinking through application this week, the social media thing comes to mind the most. I think that's where we slip. I shouldn't say slip, it's where we sin. We cause many people to stumble and take offense because we just want to vent. It's not good. It's not good. It's sinful. Think about this restraint, perhaps, and how we use our money. You know, we're free, free from the law, free from the ceremonial law, the law that was imposed upon Israel in relation to tithes in the Old Testament. What does the Bible say about tithing and giving? In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it says we're to give generously in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that kind of makes me nervous to mention that. You say, I don't have to pay my tithe no more, preacher. Right, you don't have to pay your tithe. But the question you ask, as one pastor said, is not how much I give, but how much dare I keep. The freedom is, look at what Christ has done in his freedom. How can I help others know that with what I've been given? How, how little can I live on so that others might see Christ and savor what Christ has done? So restraint looks like that. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That's restraint. We're responsible. We think about the effects what we're doing could have on other people rather than just say, I'm free to do this and I'm going to do it. That's irresponsibility. And secondly and finally, reliance is the second word, reliance. What does Jesus tell Peter to do here? Peter, he don't even tell us if he went and done it or not. We assume he did, but he says, Peter, I want you to go fishing. Not take a net with you. I want you to go down there and I cast your line out. So he goes and cast his, he's supposed to go down there and cast the line out. The 
first fish that comes up, you take that fish after you've caught it and open up its mouth, you're going to find something in it. What are they going to find? What's the Bible say? You're going to find a shekel. And a shekel is going to be enough to pay whose tax? Both Jesus and Peter's because Peter's free as well. He don't have to pay the tax. A shekel's worth that two drachma tax. And God's providing so when I say reliance here, what I mean is this, and what we mean by this in the text. We exercise restraint. We live wisely, graciously, humbly, responsibly in the land of the easily offended for the glory of God and for the lost. And we rely upon the Lord to provide because sometimes we're going to be giving up some things that we don't have to, we don't, we don't have to give up or we don't have to do. But we go ahead. And when we do that, we rely upon Christ to take care of us. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. So I don't cheat on my taxes. You're not really free to do that anyway, but we trust God to provide. And what we see happening here with Peter is, is, is a miraculous provision, right? But how many of us have experienced miraculous provision? Well, there'd be a lot of testimonies. How, many, how about the check in the mail that showed up? That was just about the right amount to pay that bill that you didn't know how it was going to be paid. And all of a sudden, a check came in the mail. You ever experienced something like that? I know some of you have. I've told you all about my 290,000 Ford Ranger, 290,000 miles on it. and You could hear it coming down the road for about a mile. And then somebody knew about my need and gave me a brand new one. I mean, brand new off the lot, you know, and took care of it. I was preaching revival somewhere, and then my preacher buddies say, well, where's that church at? You need, they need another revival preacher? <laughs> but folks, you know it always don't happen that way. There's not always a check in the mail or somebody generous to buy you a brand new truck. But like the book of Habakkuk says, you know, if there's no, basically there's no corn ain't in the field, there's been a drought or no cattle in the stalls, you'd all rejoice in him. I still don't have the check in the mail. I still don't have the job offer. I still don't have this or that. I'm going to keep trusting him. I'm going to keep living by faith in the land of the easily offended, seeking to do what glorifies God, not trying to take shortcuts because I'm going to rely upon him. When we do that, we display the permanence of the freedom of Christ through our continual reliance upon Christ. And when we continually rely upon Christ, just continually doing that, people are observing that, we're displaying the permanence of the freedom that we have in Christ. His freedom that he's given us from sin and from the law is not shifting, right? It's permanent. It's lasting. And we, when we persevere and continually serve him, we're displaying our faith in Christ in the permanence of the freedom that he's given us by our continual perseverance. So when we think about freedom, I think of the old... Well, popular song from many years ago. It's been around a long time. We like to sing around 4th of July. Lee Greenwood, uh, proud to be an American. Is that it? Something like that. The flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. You know that song, right? Flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. One problem with that, they can I mean, that's a strong, I, I like the song, okay? So don't stone me to death, throw a chair at me. But let's think about it for a moment. They can. 
And that's not something to be taken for granted. We ought to pray for our troops and our soldiers, and we ought to be wise when it comes election time and prayer for our leaders that we have now. But it can be taken away. But this freedom we have in Christ, flag still stands for freedom, they can't take that away. <laughs> Not true. But the cross still stands for freedom. The tomb is still empty and nobody's gonna take it away. He will hold us fast, right? And there's a day coming in Romans chapter 8, it says, when as the creation's standing on tiptoe, waiting eagerly for the, the, the revealing of the sons of God, where we receive our full adoption, there's an independence day coming. And we are motivated by that to continually rely upon Christ. It tells us so wonderfully in Romans chapter 8 about that day. Bear with me as I turn over and just read those verses. Verse 23 of Romans 8 says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're fully embracing this freedom. Because right now our bodies hurt, right? Creation's groaning, the Bible says. There's there's. Hurricane Dorian, that's the groaning of creation. It's like standing on tiptoes waiting for this to be over. Personified creation. So it is with humanity, redeemed humanity. We, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of our bodies, the full enjoyment of what it means to be a child of God in a glorified body. And so it says in verse 28 of Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For, verse 29, those he before knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means it's going to happen. Right? If he predestined it, it's going to happen to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? Because the father has many sons. I'm Abraham, and so are you, right? The promise is applied to those who have faith in Jesus, not just those who have Jewish blood going through their veins. And so it says in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's as if it's already happened. It's as if the full adoption has already taken place. It's that guaranteed, right? So, in light of this great, glorious, unchanging, permanent news, we seek to live by faith in the land of the easily offended. And it's not always easy. And sometimes it's going to cost us. But God is promising. He's showing here by the miraculous provision that awaits Peter when he goes fishing. Peter, you trust me. And I'm going to take care of you. And maybe that's what you need to be reminded of this morning. You need to keep trusting the Lord. Keep doing the right things. Don't take shortcuts to try to make, meet your own needs and do something that would be a stumbling block to the lost around you. Keep waiting on the Lord, trusting Him to provide what's needed. And no matter what happens, you remember this. The worst thing that's going to happen to you 
is not going to happen. Amen. Because Jesus took that on the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is glorious news. And the Bible teaches us that there's not one person sitting in this room who cannot enjoy the status of being a child of God. The Bible teaches us that we have all sinned against God and we are not free. We are slaves. The only thing we freely do is we freely take our will and we go ahead and sin and do what we're not supposed to do. We are slaves. But the Bible says whoever would repent, turn from their sins, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ will be set free and they will be born again, adopted into his family. And we would love to talk with you about that, about how God might be at work in your heart if you have questions about that. Maybe you're here and you understand that, but you've never been biblically baptized. The Bible tells us that it's not an option. If you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, the next thing you ought to do after you've professed faith in Jesus is you ought to make that public. Go public with your faith. It's not going to wash away your sin, but it's going to show everybody who did, right? That Jesus did. And I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. I thank you for being this God that makes all of us and does all that you've done. And, but that you're not just creator God, but you're the redeemer God. I thank you that there are conjunctions like however. Or, but God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Lord, I pray that we would live in the freedom of Christ as believers and honor and glorify you in how we live our life, Lord, and not live selfishly, inconsiderate of others and things we say or do with our time or our money or our decision-making. And Father, if we're convicted, I pray our conviction would lead to obedience, not out of a sense of earning a place with you, but out of knowing that a place with you has been earned by Christ. And we would gladly repent. Father, I pray you grant repentance and faith to those who have not yet received it, Lord. They would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stay. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. 
a popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.